They showboat is noticed wherever they go. They dazzle you with their charm and professionalism. Welcome aboard the Silver Dollar Showboats. So the voice you've just heard is that of Scott Stevenson, better known to some people as the Silver Dollar Showboat. I'm here today with Scott Crone. You got a good first name, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the name Scott out of my generation was popular, but you're a young buck and you still got named Scott. That must come from through your family line somehow. It does not. Oh, it doesn't? No, my, my family's from Denmark. And oh, yeah. I, I asked my parents, like, how did they come up with Scott? And they said, we just liked it. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I think most of my, uh, or at least a portion of my background, as far as my heritage, is also from Denmark. Oh, really? Christiansen's, I think, in background. Stevenson is with an O-N. Yeah, that'd be Swedish. English. Yeah, that's English. But Christiansen, Anderson, and yeah. I'm trying to remember the other one. They're all Nielsen. They're all okay. Scandinavian. Very good. Well, I, it, on my father's side, Krohn wasn't the, the full name. It was Krohn something. And when they got to Ellis Island... They oh. dropped the something. Yeah. So no one knows what it is. And so it, seriously, it just, nobody knows what it is. Yeah, no. My, my grandfather wasn't the best at history and that got passed on to my father. My mom tells me more about my father's growing up history than my dad does. <laughs> but yeah, but Krone is the Danish currency, but everyone thinks that it's Danish, but it, it's really not. So three quarters of my family has come from Denmark. And then my grandfather was the one quarter that was somewhere between. Poland and Russia, depending yeah. on which year it was and which war was occurring. When they got to Ellis Island, they just they dropped the back end. They thought it'd be easier just to have a shorter name. So that's the story I was told. You're out of Chicago. You out of Chicago proper? Are you in the suburbs there? Or? Just north. I live in the northern suburbs and work is in Northbrook, Illinois. So it's about 20 miles, 25 miles north of the city. And this, and you've been a native Illinois, an Illinoisan, is that what they say? Yeah, I guess I might be even say a survivor now. So this is just only people leaving the state. But I did leave the state for four years while in college. I went to college in Ohio. And then I came back to, to get my master's degree. And then I got a job. So it just progressed that way. And then, and you've got a wife and a bunch of kids? Just three. Not as many as your family. You were what? <laughs> yeah. One of 10. So we well, nobody, just, nobody's doing that anymore. We have three. Our last one was going to be going off to college in a couple months in January. So we'll be oh, empty nesters. Oh, how fun. Well, you'll be an empty nester. I've been that for a while and there's a lot of good things to it. But then again, there's some things you're going to end up missing, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I can only imagine well, what we'll miss. Give me a quick background of what it is that, that you do, because I know it looks like you wear a lot of hats. It has expanded. The hat rack has expanded. I began getting my master's degree in 1991 when I graduated from Kenyon College in Ohio. And I was fortunate that they came out with this new master's degree program that you didn't have to have a bachelor's degree in architecture in order to get it. So basically in a three and a half year program, I condensed a five-year program into three and a half years. And during that time period, I got hooked up with a professor who was a developer, an architect, and a contractor for multifamily. And he would work on actual projects in his studio that he wanted his students to develop. So that way he could actually then implement them in, in, in his business. And so my project was picked for as part of my master's thesis. And it was a $100 million facility of a multifamily, mixed-use multifamily. And so I worked on that for six years with him, three years while I was in school, and then three years after I graduated, didn't ran different projects from during that period of time. And then in 1998, at the ripe age of 28, I thought I knew enough to go out on my own. And <laughs> Sure, why not? 
So we, we all started, know everything in 28. Exactly. I think we, we all know we have the confidence and maybe the stupidity to think all that, right? Yeah. So at 28, I started Coda and we were developers and a design build firm. And we were doing, we first started with single family, then we got into mixed use multi-family. We also did some churches. We've done five churches over the period of our, our career there. And then the financial crash came. And that's when in 13, we got into more commercial. The residential market completely dried up. And it was that time I started looking into self-storage. And we had a client that actually wanted us to help them develop a self-storage facility. So that's where I got involved with that. And then in 17, 18, I sold off our multifamily and we've just been doing self-storage ever since. And in 2021, we opened up our own brand, One Stop Self-Storage. We, we felt that the REITs that we were working with at the time were not representing our interests. And so we decided to open up our own brand. So now we do the development, we do the design build, and now also the management of our facilities. So that's the part that the self-storage has been really interesting to me because I've had uh, one of my sons who's been talking to me about it forever. And he goes, Dad! We need to get it in the self-storage. And I keep saying, I got other things going on. <laughs> I got other things going on. But I've always thought to myself, that would be a, I would think, a fascinating field and also a profitable field. It is. And I'm also going to add a lot less risk. And I was just at a on a panel yesterday talking about this is our niche is becoming the new norm in the real estate world. And you know, are the niches becoming standardized product? And since 19 or 2019, the amount of family offices that have invested in self-storage has grown from 2% now over 20, 22%, 22% of their investments are in self-storage. So it's becoming a more of a mainstream niche. But the reason why I like it is one, it's predictable, more predictable than multifamily. Two, it's a fraction of the cost. So I can have a thousand units at about 10%. When like when we did 300 units, it was a hundred million dollars. I can do a thousand units and my valuation will be 10 to 13, 14 million dollars. But my cost basis is a fraction of that. And I also have a lot more flexibility. I can change my unit configuration a lot easier than we could when we were doing multifamily. Do so much. Yeah. And I'm, I, it's interesting to me now. I've been around a while as people can't see me on this podcast, but I've been, I've been around a few years, around the block a few times. It seems to me, I don't remember self-storage being that big of a deal, say, back in the 60s. It seems to be exploding in the last 20, 25 years. Is that true? And if so, why do you think that is? I think it has grown. I would say the growth has been more exponential in the last 10 to 15 years. But I think because people originally thought self-storage was out in the country. Like if you go and look at a class C facility, when we say class C, we're talking like first generation mom and pop type facilities, not that they're in bad neighborhoods and they're smaller, they're more rural areas. But I think as the cost of housing has risen and the cost of doing business has risen, 50% of our customers are businesses and they're looking at for storage of inventory. And so as the nature of business has changed, as the nature and the costs have changed and how people use their homes have changed, now homes are schools, they're gyms, they are office centers, you know, people are using their homes differently and they don't, it's more expensive. So self-storage offers a cheap alternative to expanding your house. You know, you can go well, and rent that's, it. That's real interesting because just recently we had a storage room in our basement that was unfinished that we were using and throwing all our junk in like everybody does. And we finished it and made it into a, like a home gym. And mm -hmm. you're right. So there goes the storage and the room and everything's thrown all over the place. And we keep looking at each other. We got to get rid of this stuff. <laughs> and some of it we want to get rid of, 
but a lot of it is things we we want to keep and the alternative that i really hadn't thought about using a storage i have a bunch of them if you want to rent one you have them out here in utah <laughs> no <laughs> so the commute might be a little longer i'm gonna have to drive to chicago to put my stuff no you, you could rent in our ellsworth main one that would that moment <laughs> might be a little closer for I you see, i see <laughs> well, that makes total economic sense that really does make economic sense and the household use really has actually changed i didn't know anybody who had a gym in their house back when I was a little kid. Who would do that? Nobody was even exercising back then. When I grew up, the basement was a scary place, right? It wasn't finished and it was raw and everything Spiders else. were down there. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't, a, it was, granted, my, my parents set up for us to play Legos, which is why one of the reasons why I got into architecture. I love building, creating things. And, but it wasn't an inviting place to go down and play, right? Nowadays, when we build homes, that's an extension of it. And cost of real estate is so high that when we finish out a basement, it's there's movie theaters down there, there's gyms down there, there's bars, there's some bedrooms, everything's down in the basement. It's just a it's a golden space right now. Yeah, you're right. It's been interesting. I mean, we had a parade of homes here in Salt Lake City, and uh, we we did a podcast with each of the builders. And when I went out to see the homes, those basements were all done. Just like you say, they have a theater room, a game room, they have all kinds of things. <laughs> basements have come a long way, baby, as they say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That and addicts, right? That's it. That and addicts. And so the other question I have for you in regards to the commercial uh, use of those is that, and I never really thought about that, which makes total sense, is um, using those storage units as places to store inventory. I, I had not even thought especially about that. During, yeah, especially during the supply chain issues where, you yeah. know, when let's just say conduit or lumber was skyrocketing, a lot of our vendors will do it, buy up a bunch of materials and then store it so they have it at a controlled fixed price. And we were seeing a lot of that during the pandemic period of time. And the other thing is that one thing that you mentioned about storage units is that you pretty much can go anywhere and you can see storage units. They're not just way out in the boonies in a scary place. They're, in fact, mine, right outside my neighborhood, there's a storage unit and it's very well kept up. It looks very nice. It's well landscaped. It's not an eyesore. Yeah. And a lot of the buildings that we own are older buildings that are in urban settings that are 90 to 120,000 square feet that we're converting into self-storage. So we're taking these underperforming commercial buildings mm -hmm. and repurposing them to uh, into self-storage. So when you use them, you're driving into the building, the door comes down, you unload your car in a safe, dry, secure environment, and you can roll your stuff to your locker and then you drive out. And that is just a different... I don't know, look than what I would have had from years back, like you say. So do you see this business accelerating in the years to come? I don't know. If, What's your I don't view know if, of that? I don't know if accelerating is the maybe the right word. I, I think it's going to continue to grow as the population expands. And right now we're still around 10%. So we're keeping up with the population growth, but only about 10% of the population utilizes self-storage. But within those communities, it is you know, our market is three to five miles. So it's in a very important marketplace where we're focusing. And so within that, we're seeing competition grow and develop in each of those markets. We'll we continue to see it grow, especially now, like the three largest, biggest transactions that have occurred in the past 12 to 15 months have all been over a billion dollars. So Blackstone has entered the market. Gates has entered the market. Warren Buffett has entered them. So Extra Space bought a portfolio for over a billion dollars. And so did Blackstone. I think theirs was $1.3 million, $1.3 billion. And so it's definitely catching the eyes of the bigger investors. And historically, the problem is that like for, when you buy a mom and pop, you can buy anything from call it 400 to a million dollars. When we do a facility, it's we might buy it for one or $2 million and then 
convert it. And so our total cost might be like five or $6 million and the end value is $10 million. So it's not big enough like multifamily where it's attracting a lot of big tickets, but there was an investor out of St. Louis who, you know, at one point in time owned the Rams in St. Louis. And then before he moved them and was connected to a major, major player in the United <laughs> States retail market. And he backed a self-storage company family and they were had three facilities. Now that their company's over $2 billion. And it's- well, if you were to give some advice to somebody who's just looking into this to, to invest in or to run, really uh, probably more to invest in, but even in the, if somebody first gets into it, do they usually run their first units and then take profit and go from there and expand? Is that how you started? Or did you ever get involved in the actual running of these? Well, we, we run them now. So we're, you know, that's part of one-stop self-storage. And when I first did it, we hired third-party management. So, you know, we, the first one we did, we actually flipped to a self-storage company. And then the second and third one, we hired a third-party management company. And it was on the fourth and fifth and sixth one during that time period, we opened four facilities in 2020 um, that three of them we were under third party. And the fourth one we opened up under our own in 2021 in Dayton. So Dayton was our flagship one-stop self-storage. And in those cases, we saw the third-party management company was not doing what they represented to us. In fact, mm-hmm. costs were 55% higher and occupancy was through the floor. And that's when we transitioned our portfolio over to our own. And that's when we've been seeing how it should be performing, what was originally projected. And so that's the reason why we started our own. But to answer your initial question was how can people get involved? I think it's, there's multiple ways you can get involved and that depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Is it possible to buy one and run it yourself? Sure. And that's where I would say focus on maybe a class C or class B. And the difference between class C and B is might be more suburban, not as rural and larger. Instead of one to call it 50 to 300 units, a class B might be 300 to 600 units. Mm -hmm. It may be climate controlled, maybe not climate. Or if you're going to get into a class A, which is what we're developing, that's pretty hard to do on your first one by yourself because you do have to have people on site. The other ones like our ones in Michigan and also in Maine, we don't have anybody on site. They're all fully remote access and fully driven. So we have our people come in and make sure that they're clean and all those sorts of things, but there's no salespeople on staff. You can do all the reservations online. Our larger facilities, we do have staff. And so, because there's just a lot more moving parts when you have a hundred thousand square foot facility, we want to make sure that no one's sleeping in them and all those sorts of things, making sure it's clean. Do you, would you recommend if somebody was looking into getting into this kind of business, would you highly recommend it? Or do you think it's something that you need a lot of capital behind? You don't need a, you don't need as nearly the amount of capital that you do for, let's just say multifamily. That's what we were talking yeah. about before. It's a fraction of what you need. And if you're trying to get into it, keep in mind, it's a retail business as well as a real estate play. It's both. You have to be aware that it's both a real estate play and a retail business. So if you're going to buy a class C, you could do an SBA loan and get 10% down and get a loan for that. But then you either have to manage yourself or hire someone. And there are people that do manage it that run third party but you have to set the expectations. And then the next thing is if you just want to be a passive investor, you can invest passively and, and participate in that way. And that way you could get into both the Bs and the Cs. And class C is hard to do passively because you're still having to partner with someone else and there might not be enough meat on the bone to do all those things if it's if the facility is just too small. The class Cs that we have bought, we're expanding them. And the class B, we they were 30% below market price. And so we bought them and all we're doing is raising the rents and making them automated. Now, do you enjoy the uh, 
one-stop self-storage more than the multi-units that you were doing before or it's just a different facet of your business. The way I describe self-storage is it's apartments without toilets. At the conference I was attending yesterday, it was, it was a Midwest real estate forum. And so there's people from all across the country coming to attend this, but incredibly different niches of real estate. And obviously there's a lot of industrial and a lot of multifamily there. And the way I describe it is we're all renting a box. It's just how extravagant that box is. So if you take like the homes that we were discussing before, I mean, high level of finishes, right? But ultimately it's a box. Right. If you take an apartment building, it's a box with less amenities than the home. We're dealing with the most basic box. It's, it could be five by five or 10 by 10 or 10 by 20, but there's no amenities to it. So yeah. the concepts all apply. It's just how much, how, what, what are the finishes or the levels of it? So do I miss getting the calls at midnight that it's below 20 degrees and a pipe froze and, or I came home drunk and my toilet's clogged and now it's overflowing and dripping into someone else. Those are the calls I really don't dread missing. But that's interesting. I never really thought about it that way. But when you break it down and do the simple analogy that you just did, as far as they're all boxes, it, that's a very simple analogy, but very understandable and relatable. I never really thought about it that way. So do they, is taking that into account, do you have units where people buy them? No. Does anybody ever buy? And if they did, would you? They can't buy one unit. They can buy a thousand units at one time. No, I'm just wondering because it's a box. And if somebody says, hey, I wanted to pay you $10,000 for that, for that storage unit permanently, has there ever been anybody that does that? Or would that be something to consider or no? It's a, you're the only person that's ever brought that up. It, it's basically condominiumizing kind of in a, a self-storage facility. <laughs> yeah. Actually, one of the buildings that I did buy, they were trying to do that for, it was like supposed to be a, a man cave of storage for cars and stuff like that. It was oh, like, yeah. uh -huh. so 20 by 75 and the product didn't do too well. It was like when the big recession hit. And so we bought it from the bank. It was in foreclosure. It had been re retaken by the bank. And so we bought that, but that's the closest I've heard, but that was like 20 by 75. These were not like 10 by 10s or five by fives. And that's still a very unique product. I've only seen one other advertisement where they advertise it as a man cave building where you know, you can come in, have your six car collection and yeah. your billiard table and, you know, all that. So, well, but that's an interesting prospect. So here I gave you a good idea. Yeah. You can, <laughs> you can explore that. <laughs> when you get off this podcast, you'll say that guy was nuts. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Who ever thought of owning apartments and then turning them into condominiums? They all well, start someplace. True. Yeah. Hey, right. you may be way, way ahead of the game now. <laughs> Exactly. What do you see in the future for what you want to accomplish? Or are you, is there any ideas, concepts that you have set up in your mind that you want to do? Yeah. Is burning within you that you want to do? My mentor always talked about, I've had two major mentors in my life. The first one was my professor. I worked for six years. And then a second mentor is a brilliant man who came from Lebanon when he was 16. And now he's, his resume is far more impressive than mine. He's on the board of BB&T Bank. He owns Great Harvest Bread, Lazy Boy, and he's oh, uh, wow. president of High Point University. And he always talks about positioning your company to be sold. You know, when we first started, we were developers. So we were constantly flipping things, right? We were constantly just but the business itself didn't have any tangible worth because it was always related upon our next client, our next build. And now 
what we're focusing on is building a portfolio of these that we can sell to like a mid-level reach. So we're developing a portfolio of over a hundred, between probably hundred and hundred and fifty million dollars that we can flip to a mid-level REIT. And so package them all together, have 10 to 15 facilities, and then sell them at the next level. So that's our plan. That's your plan for the future. Here's a question that maybe not quite related, but nevertheless, I'm, I'll give it I'll give it to you and you can Give me your answer as best you can. How how do you live a full life? In in the sense of being able to mix, I guess, business, family, spiritual. What are some tips that you may offer to someone? There are a lot of successful people in life, but there are a lot of successful people in life and business. There's a few that I've met that are successful in balancing their life to make themselves successful in other areas at the same time. Um, do you have any tips you could give to anybody listening to this podcast on that? I have maybe some ideas, but whether they think it's worthwhile. You never know. Yeah, I think the first one is living day to day. You know, a lot of times we're always hoping or thinking for the future. Yeah. And then <clears throat> usually the future is not what we hoped or thought it might be. And I would say that's where God can surprise us and bring new things into our lives that we weren't expecting. And so it's that balance of living for today, but also having the hope for tomorrow. And, I, and for me, I do it through faith. I don't know how other people do it. And I think that's been increasingly hard, especially during the last couple of years when people put so much hope in what they could do themselves. And when that was taken away, they lost a lot. And I think that was a lot of, I don't think we took into perspective the amount of mental health issues that would arise out of what happened the last two years. And I think we're just seeing that fully. So for me, I still was living the, I was living day to day. I went to work. We were deemed essential. We didn't shut anything down. We ran four projects under construction. We actually renovated a church during that period of time. We kept everyone employed. We did it safe. We didn't have one incident of COVID during that entire period of time. And we were responsible about it. But at the same point in time, I had a purposefulness in what we were doing. Plus, I had a long-term plan. Now, can that plan change? Yes, but I still had purpose. The people that I think were just sitting at home, not knowing what to do with themselves, were the ones that were struggling the most because they lost that day-to-day perspective and they they had to refigure it out in terms of what they were going to do. So for me, I always think of like living the most I can today, but also having the hope for the future, but also beyond beyond the future. So that's how I do it. So for me, it begins with every morning, my wife and I walk along the beach with our dog and we paddleboard and it gives me a quiet time to center and be still and be quiet and to listen. And so that's where I get a lot of thoughts. That's where I would say that God puts things in my heart and my mind that I can prepare for the day in the future. And that, that sets the rest of the day for me. We do that in Chicago. We're walking the beach in the middle of the winter and people are saying like, you're crazy. And we paddleboard from end of March through the end of October. And I've, the only month I haven't paddleboard in Lake Michigan is, is December. And we're not being reckless about it, but we're, it's that period of time where we can have that stillness and quietness. The other thing I've done is I've enrolled in a two and a half year program about transformation to become a better leader in our business. And so a lot of it focuses on myself. So you can't be an effective leader unless you're addressing things in your own heart, in your own life. And so those are other things that I've been doing to focus on that, to learn more about why I react, how I do things and how I can do those things. I like that. I like everything that you've had to say there because sometimes, you know, what I've read about biz, uh, business leaders, a number of business leaders, 
a lot of business leaders, and I've researched back into their background, they've been very successful in the business side of their life, but the personal side of their life seems to be a wreck because it doesn't seem like they've balanced their life out. And so I think that's the hardest thing when particularly if you're a, a very driven person to in, in the business world, sometimes you can get lost. And it's nice to know that you're taking the time to spend not only for self-reflection, but also involving your wife, because of course, geez, I don't think there's anything more crushing than to be successful in business and a failure in your personal, in your personal life with your family. We see that throughout society, right? Yeah. It's, I have a colleague who's, he's stated that he's willing and to sacrifice his family in order to develop a billion dollar self-storage company. And a lot of people that care about him say, you sure about that? Is that really what you want? And if he does want that, then so be it. That's that. Those are his decisions that he's willing to yeah. not have kids and not have those sorts of things. But I think the people that have the benefit of experiencing those things in their life are saying like, there's more to it than just having saying you have a billion dollar company. Yeah. I, I always go back to people when you hear about on their deathbed, they don't regret saying, I wish my company was bigger. They were, I wish I had more time with the people that I loved. Mm -hmm. And the first time I had someone pass away in my life, I was 18 years old. And there's a friend at 16 who had cancer and she passed away within three months of being diagnosed. And my second friend, I was 25 and he had cancer from 16 years old. So I've gotten appreciation to losing someone who I care about a lot very early on in my life and just realizing the biggest gift that we have is relationships with other people. So if we're not maximizing that, then what really is there? Because that's the only thing we can really take with us is relationships. And I think that the perspective of being able to be successful in business, but also to be able to put it in perspective to the, if you want to call it the eternal nature of the soul or whatever is, is wonderful because it, it helps you to balance out who you are. Absolutely. So is there any pieces of advice that you personally would like to pass along to people who are looking to be successful entrepreneurs, be it on a business side or a personal side? Is there any tips or advice that you'd like? To I think that the first part of it is that it's easy to say, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to own my own business. It's another thing to do it. And I'm not saying that in a braggadocious mode. If you just look at the statistics, I think it's one out of seven businesses succeeds after seven years when they first start. So the success rate is not 90% or 80% or 50%, right? So there's a high, there's a high degree of failure. And there's a high degree of failure as being an entrepreneur on a daily basis. You're going to get more no's than you get yeses. And so you have one person said, you have an incredible belief in yourself. And I said, it's not really a belief in myself. I just believe in what I've been driven to do. If you don't have it, it's easy to get discouraged and quit. And my mother translates that to, I was not the best athlete. I had to work my butt off athletically and I got cut a ton. And she thinks that I was, it helped prepare me for being an entrepreneur because you're going to get a lot of no's before you get yeses. And I, I don't care how, how successful you are, you're going to get no's. We were at this forum that I was at yesterday. They, one of the other speakers was a guy who developed a couple hundred million dollar sky rises in, in the city of Chicago. And he got a whole bunch of no's. In fact, he only had one bank that said yes to him. He had to pretend that there was multiple banks that were saying yes in order to negotiate with the one. <laughs> yeah. because I'm down to my last option and I have millions of dollars at stake in earnest money that I'm going to lose. And I was like literally out of options. So here's a guy who's doing $100 million projects 
and he's getting plenty of no's. So it doesn't matter if, if you're doing 100,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 or million or $100 million project, you're going to experience that. And that's what I tell a lot of people when I was coaching real estate is the difference is the number of zeros at the back end. It's a number, right? Yeah. So it's going to be based upon your workload and all those sorts of things. But when we're going through this, you have to have a level of confidence and it's going to be hard. And so if you're going to be an entrepreneur, make sure you're in it for the long haul because it's not for everybody. You have to work hard at it. You're going to experience a lot of no's. And this past weekend, our town celebrated its 150th birthday. And I ran into my first banker. He's retired and he was with his grandchild. And he said, hey, look at this man. He, this guy's really rich. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy, he's done a lot. <laughs> And that was him. He was always a salesman. And I'm thinking like, why is he telling his granddaughter? And I said, you know what? I'm only where I am today because your grandfather first believed in me. Yeah. And I'm rich in life because of he was the first person to say yes to me. And I'll never forget him for that. And his bank actually closed during the the Great Recession because they got overextended. It wasn't because of us. We paid back all of our loans. But the bank actually closed and, um, but so I, we're no longer customers, but otherwise I would still be doing business with him because he was the first person who said yes to me. And we all need that first person to say yes. And so keep working hard, keep being persistent, but recognize you're going to get a bunch of no's, but be appreciative of the people that say yes to you. Everything that you have just articulated is just absolutely right on with the same experience I've had in my life because I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, ran a business, an insurance business for over 30 years. And I can tell you the amount of times I heard the word no, I could stack it on top of each other and they go to the top of the Empire State Building. But again, it gets back to exactly what you said. You just, you wait for that yes and, and it will come if you're persistent. But like you say, you have to make it a lifetime pursuit instead of just, hey, I try it for a year, I get a bunch of no's, and now I'm out. And that's why everybody has a tendency to fail. Yeah. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I run into so many people in business. And, and this is the other thing about when you're dealing with a bunch of entrepreneurs. Some people, I meet them, they may be very successful in what they're doing, but they're just so annoying to talk to. They just seem, I don't know. So 100% about themselves or whatever the case may be. And then there are other people that I meet like yourself that just seem like you're down to earth, regardless of what your success has been, that you seem to have your feet on the ground. And I love that about entrepreneurs too, because that whole spirit there either produces somebody who's got a huge ego, or it seems to produce people who've been beat up so many times that they get it, that life is full of ups and downs. My wife was a consultant for family businesses until she started working for a family office. And the common trait of the first generation is that they're very entrepreneurial and have a, a core belief in themselves. Second generation does typically does not have as much drivenness as the first generation. And the third generation typically does not have an understanding of the business and they have to be trained and developed in that. So to that end, a lot of what you're saying is absolutely true because they're the first generation is completely focused on themselves, right? In order to yeah. to succeed, because if they don't have the means to pay for things, you know, like how do you support your family? How do you raise a family? All those sort of things, especially when you have employees. Talk about more of a burden. It was like when payrolls due, it's not. I'm not just paying my family. I'm paying like 
other people's families. Yes. Uh-huh. There's a difference when you're writing the check to make sure that people can pay their bills. And that was one of the things that I was most proud about that during the pandemic, that we kept people employed. We kept the paychecks rolling in so that people wouldn't have to suffer through that sort of thing. That's what I don't understand what happened during the pandemic. It's like, how did people survive with not working? Yeah. How do people, if they want rate abatement, then how do people that own multifamily pay their mortgages? You know, yeah. it's it, it, there's a ripple effect here. So I've always maintained that perspective, but I also saw, again, going back to the people that helped me. If I didn't have the people that invested in me, then I would not be where I am today. So for me, I always feel like I need to give back because of what I received. And my, my mentor always likes to, to quote the quote, receive without forgetting, but give without remembering. And so it's- That's a great, a great statement. Yeah. So the idea is you never forget who've invested in you, but don't keep track of the people that you've invested in. And that I think that one's actually harder to do because when you do see someone that has success, you're like, you can be appreciative of the fact that you did help that person. You know, that you're like, wow, I can see where they've gone. And I'm glad that they're doing well in what they're doing, which is why we're the host parents for three kids right now, currently at Northwestern University. And they've come from Congo, Rwanda and South Sudan. Mm. And, and so it's all through a program called Bridge to Rwanda, which we've been involved with for many years. And we, our church was involved with a boarding school that started off as an orphanage in response to the genocide. And seeing these kids come over here and go to college, it's, they're getting something that they couldn't get in their own country. And it's changing the direction. It's changing the track of the, where they are in life. And it's no different than when we work with a great organization here in Chicago called Grip Outreach for Youth, which they're altering the path that the kids are on by mentorship. And they're not just throwing money at a problem and saying, hey, we need a better this or that. They're saying we're investing in people's lives in order to change the problems that they've inherently gone through, through trauma. You know, the result of that is called ACEs. And the only way to address that is through adult mentorship. And the way I view it is you're on a track and then you're being put on a different track and you're going to a different destination in your life because someone was willing to pull the lever and move you from one track to the next. And how easy is it just to pull the lever as opposed to doing nothing? Well, we need to put you, have you ever thought about running for office and being over housing and welfare? <laughs> Clearly not. I am not I mean, made up for that. There's certain I only have so much patience. But there's just so much to, there's so much to unpack of what you just said. But all I will add to that is that you don't change people by money. Throwing money at problems has never been the answer, but somehow so many people think, because that's the easy thing to say, it's actually investment of uh, human talent into other people that actually makes that change, which is what you're doing. And that is where you're going to see a change. That is where homelessness can be addressed on a direct level and welfare issues and housing issues. All these issues to me were just could be addressed at just what you've said in the last five minutes. So you got my vote for public office. Or you want to go down that road? Your vote will be in your pocket a long time. <laughs> I've certainly enjoyed talking talking with you, Scott. I've actually enjoyed the last few minutes uh, even more because, I mean, talking business is always enjoyable and hearing about people that are successful. But I think all these other aspects um, that, uh, that make a person, not just a businessman or an entrepreneur, but actually a total human is much more interesting. At least it is to me. 
So I hope I, I hope you've had an enjoyable time. I greatly enjoyed it. And there's one thing I would like to offer your guests, if it's appropriate. Sure. If if anybody you know reaches out to us and says that they've listened to this, we're happy to give them two things that will help them understand self storage better. One is a feasibility report that we actually pulled from one of our locations, and we do this for every location so they get us the understanding of what the marketplace is and why we chose to go into that market. But it also talks about self-storage as a whole. The other is a self-storage analyzer. And so they can plug in numbers and see if it works. So you can compare it to your multifamily analyzer or your single family analyzer. If they reach out to us, we're happy to send them those two free gifts. And if they have just questions, again, we will answer their questions. We will, they want an hour of our time. We're happy to do that, to go through it and say, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? The industries within the self-storage community, we're certainly not going to try to steal anything. You can help someone else out on that path. And we're happy to do that. Well, that's wonderful. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. It's been great talking with you. And maybe we'll talk again. We'll maybe have you back in a year and and see whether you're running for office somewhere (laughs) in Chicago. I look forward to the time where we can connect again, but I'm sure we won't be talking about my election. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll talk later. Don't go down the river of life unnoticed by being a tugboat. Get educated at www.askusutah.com. Everyone can be a showboat. You just have to want it.